is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. For some time now, doctors have been saying that a COVID-19 shot would be like maybe someday getting a flu shot. It would happen once a year. Turns out they're right. U.S. health officials are now saying most people only need to get their COVID boosters once a year. So we'll go in-depth into what appears to be a change. The L.A. School District has been hit with a big cyber attack. We look into what information could have been gathered by the attackers and if certain protection systems are out of date. And the U.K. as a new prime minister, but can she steer the country's economy back in the right direction? We'll go overseas and find out. Democrats gaining momentum ahead of the midterms. The race is really beginning now, so we'll talk about how things are shaping up. The governor signing a bill that could make working at a fast food restaurant a lot better. Complaints growing that parents aren't being warned about a potentially deadly problem with baby formula. And remember the famous Darth Vader line to Luke Skywalker about mm-hmm. being his father? Yeah. Uh, you probably don't remember the exact quote. We'll look into why so many of us misremember the same things. What, wasn't the, the line, uh, Luke, we're going to make an awful lot of money on this film <laughs> yes. franchise? I think that was the line, wasn't <laughs> don't it? Don't put this in the trailer. Is yeah. The line. yeah. <laughs> okay. We start, we start, though, with uh, COVID booster recommendations. Dr. Tanya Dahl is an ER dire- uh, doctor with uh, Providence Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So, uh, yeah, as we said at the very start, uh, a lot of people since this pandemic began and vaccines became available kept saying if only, if only we could get it down to maybe once a year instead of boosters every few months. It appears as if that's where we're now going. Yes. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. So, you know, it's been a long two and a half years now uh, trying to battle this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, You know, we do know that viruses are all different. They all act different. They all mutate different. We've had two and a half years now. Doc, we're going to jump in here because I think there's some... uh... Trouble with the uh, the microphone there it might be moving around or, or something. So we'll, we'll we'll check that on the outside, right? And then we'll we'll circle back to you. But but yeah, the the change today with the new guidance that comes for the new shot was this also this mention that hey, at least for most people, immunocompromised obviously different, maybe the elderly different. This could be like a once a year flu shot kind of thing, and maybe we've you know we've gotten lucky. We've talked to some health officials before saying that BA five now hasn't mutated past that yet. So this is this shot. Maybe next year it's something else. But we can handle that when we come to it. Right. But of course, there is that that one caveat. The caveat is that so far, you know, we've had sort of various variations on the Omicron variant. How many times have I used the word variant now in different ways? Uh, Various variant (laughs) variations. Yes. Uh, But as officials in in, uh, Washington have been pointing out this morning, there is always that possibility that a non-Omicron uh, lineage could develop. See, I didn't use variant there. <laughs> I came up with another one. Lineage could uh, end up, uh, and if that were to happen, then there would have to be some fancy footwork done on the part of the pharmaceutical companies to try to retool the vaccines to do that. So, but even that would be very similar to the flu vaccines because every year they kind of guess, they try to anyway, what the predominant strain is going to be. And as you know, Sometimes they hit it right on the money, and sometimes those flu vaccines yeah. are... We look back a few months later, they go, well, it wasn't a particularly good one this year, but yeah. uh, we'll so, try it again next year. Right, so you, ne- you, never, you, know, you never really know. Um, but also, uh, and 
equally important is uh, that message about, you know, moving to once a year. And, and you said it before, Mike. Uh, you know, that isn't for everybody. It, it'll probably be, they say, for the vast majority of people in this country, but not for people who have uh, immune issues, not for people who are very uh, elderly and uh, perhaps uh, have a much more frail immune system. And it's going to be up to the CDC, as it always is, to try to figure out exactly where that line is going to be. What, what is the age when one becomes, quote, elderly, so they need to do more than, than one booster a year? We do have the doctor uh, back with us, uh, switching over to the uh, phone. Doctor, we've, we've gone through who would still maybe need more than once a year and some you compromise. It's the elderly. The trick, I think, what, next month and, and the remainder of this month as we move to that is actually to get people this, this new variant booster. Yeah, correct. Sorry about all the technical difficulties. Thanks, guys. Um, Yeah, so just last week, the FDA approved this new vaccine that's going to cover a lot of the new predominant strains of the the virus, such as BA4 and 5. Um, We're hoping it should be on shelves uh, at local pharmacies and hopefully at physicians' offices almost as early as next week. So we are going to have a lot of uh, pharmacies and offices that have pre-orders out to try to get the shots in people's arms as soon as possible to keep everybody safe. But let me ask you about that, because as you know, there is some disagreement among specialists about the timing. Uh, the CDC is saying you should get this new, improved, retooled Omicron uh, variant vaccine uh, with at least two months uh, having gone by from either your last one or three months, I think they're saying, since you may have been infected and came down with COVID. But then there are those experts who are saying, no, you're better off waiting four, five, even six months because it's better for your immune system. So where do we stand on that? Correct. I think there's a lot of back and forth in the research and medical community as to the exact timing and what's the most effective. Um, I think with time, we're going to have more research and data available to help guide us. But for now, I'm just advising my patients, just stick somewhere in the middle. I say four months is probably the right time. So I, I would say four months is, is a little bit um, kind of in the middle of both of those recommendations, which is what I'm, I'm more comfortable with. Dr. Tanya Dahl, ER doctor, Providence Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo. See, she agrees with me. I'm doing mine tomorrow, and it's four months. There you go. So You're right on track. Right, right on track. Still to come, nine weeks left until the midterms. Democrats could pull off some surprises and concern growing that parents aren't being told enough about a potentially serious problem with baby formula. Right now, though, the L.A. school district has shared some details about a cyber attack on its computer network. Superintendent Alberto Cavallo acknowledged the attack in a news conference earlier. We cannot disclose at this point anything beyond the fact that at 10.30 p.m. Saturday night, LAUSD was attacked uh, with a ransomware tool that temporarily disabled systems, froze others, and had access to some degree of data. Nearly all systems are now up and running, but what's the damage? Ralph Lose is head of services for go-to-market for cybersecurity firm Extra Hop. Thanks for being with us. So uh, is it possible to tell from what little detail we've been given publicly anyway what the damage or potential damage could be? Uh, likely no. Uh, and I hate to speculate as, as everybody tends to do in these situations, but, um, you know, speculating and guessing what happened, how the depth of the, uh, of the issue, uh, probably uh, a bit irresponsible at this point. 
Well, when someone goes up against a big organization like this one, though, what is it usually for? Is it for the info or is it like a ransomware kind of thing? Well, look, they said ransomware, um, but, uh, you know, they said ransomware tool. Uh, school districts, uh, anybody that has data is a good target. School districts particularly, right? Um, they have data about kids, uh, which is a, is a wealth of information for anybody trying to look at identities, uh, you know, potentially blackmail, all kinds of things you can you can creatively think of from uh, school data. Uh, they're likely targets, right? It's a it's it's either an opportunistic target or a directly or directly targeted type type of entity. We just don't know. But isn't the bottom line because we go through this? It seems to me, uh, if not weekly, certainly every couple of months. Uh, with one large organization or another, sometimes it's hospitals, sometimes it's school districts. Nobody seems to be particularly prepared for this. <laughs> well, look, um, everybody's got a plan until somebody drops uh, some sort of ransomware tool or attacker tool on their doorstep. Um, it, the reality is their level of preparedness varies in our industries, various uh, market segments, various types of companies. Uh, cybersecurity is always going to be said to be a priority, but it's a it's an important piece of, uh, of IT, uh, but it requires a lot of expertise, a lot of spend, a lot of careful planning and a lot of execution that uh, particularly, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot to glue all that stuff together and make it work well. And uh, to be frank, look, it's something that's that's kept us uh, cybersecurity professionals employed for years and years and, and will for years to come because the challenge is uh, you, you can't you, you can't effectively be perfect all the time. And I think attackers know that. And uh, whether it's a target of opportunity or, or a, you know, a, other means, um, this is going to this is happening. This is going to keep happening. Um, and it's just a matter of for most organizations that, that get popped like this. Uh, how fast can you recover? How fast can you detect it? Can you tell where they went, what the attackers did, what their intent was, what they took, what they uh, broke uh, where they inserted themselves and get them out and get back to business. Are most of these big organizations or, or companies being targeted pretty routinely and having to fend this stuff off pretty much all the time? Uh, I would say I would uh, pull the word most out of there. But look, if I take a broad swath analysis across you know, the last couple of years, a um, lot of us in the industry will tell you that very few of the uh, public uh, and private sector um, companies that get targeted uh, really take that much uh, attacker mind share, right? A lot, these guys, I think uh, LA County even said that it was a, a, an attack, a, a ransomware tool. There was an advisory put out by uh, CIS, by CISA uh, this morning, um, earlier, I think in, in the day uh, regarding uh, a, a something called the the Vice Society. It's a ransomware group, but they all, um, you know, they they all use the same types of techniques. There's not a whole lot of novelty here. Uh, when you've got computer systems that have been around, look at the way school districts. I mean, I've been been to several. I don't can't comment specifically what LA has, but I've been around school districts for a long time, having you know consulted and worked in them. Um, they, they have technology that's either donated or bought over the years, cycled out in phases. Some of it is uh, various different versions of an operating system, some managed, some unmanaged. It doesn't take a tremendous amount to break in, right? You got to find an avenue, steal somebody's password 
or guess it based on their Facebook profile and you're in and you can look around because defense in depth, particularly in school schools, isn't something that they've got a whole lot of because it's just, you know, it's an expensive priority and uh, the priority tends to be on uh, educating kids rather than putting expensive security gadgets in. Roth Lose at the cybersecurity firm Extra Hop. You know, a little bit later, we're going to talk about this really interesting phenomenon where a lot of people, like most people, remember the exact same thing, the exact same way, but all of it is wrong. Kind of like beam me up, Scotty. Yes. They never actually said that. No. Yeah. And, and, but we and, all think they did. No, and, and in, in uh, Casablanca, the line, play it again, Sam, never actually said. But everybody thinks it was. Why is that? Well, we'll find out. Okay. Right now, though, the U.K. has a new prime minister. Liz Truss takes over for Boris Johnson. Rough economic time for the country. High inflation, labor unrest, war in Ukraine. Darren Adam back with us, presenter on LBC Radio out of London. Darren, thanks for being here. So tell us about Liz Truss. Well, where would you like to start? We'll start with the fact that she is Britain's fourth prime minister in six years. We'll get to that in just a few moments' time. Liz Truss has been around for a while she, even in the race to replace the disgraced Boris Johnson, was not especially popular. She certainly wasn't a front runner. And there is a suspicion that she was assisted into her position where she ended up in the final two to uh, in, in the final runoff. A suspicion that she was assisted by the supporters of Rishi Sunak, who she defeated on the basis that she would be an easier final contender for him to deal with. That hasn't worked. And so what we've ended up with, with is with somebody who nobody really thought was going to be prime minister. And if you look back even just a few weeks to a very hesitant, literally stumbling campaign, a lot of people are really scratching their heads and thinking, my goodness, we've, we've ended up with somebody even worse than Boris Johnson. How, how is that possible? And yet there she is, right? So... Uh... You guys over there, you're facing a lot of economic issues, right? I mean, high cost of energy, high cost of food. Uh, Her solution, as I understand it, is, at least to a large measure, to cut taxes, uh, which was something that Ronald Reagan tried here, and I think Margaret Thatcher tried there, to very little success. Mm. Well, we're just getting news now of what she's likely to do about the energy crisis. And she appears to be, this isn't confirmed, but she appears to be settling upon a plan where energy prices for consumers will be frozen where they are now. And the difference, the cost of funding that will come from the taxpayer. There had been a suggestion that she was going to try to claw it back from the bills of households in future years. She doesn't seem to be landing on that, but she does seem to be landing on the idea that uh, essentially £100 billion is going to be used to get households through the winter, which is great. But as you say, Charles, if you ally that to a plan to cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes, at some point, the very reasonable question is asked, how are we going to pay for stuff? How are we going to pay for all the things that we like and need in the country? You can't, on one hand, spend £100 billion, although many people are calling for that to be spent, and on the other hand, cut taxes, as she is uh, claiming to do. The other thing to remember about Liz Truss is that she has said essentially everything to everybody at every time in the past. If you go back to the 1990s, she was in a different party, the Liberal Democrats. She stood in front of the conference of that party calling for the monarchy to be abolished. She was a very prominent supporter of remaining in the European Union. She's now been recast as a as a very 
uh, firm Eurosceptic, somebody who, who believes that Brexit was the right thing to do. She's had two views on essentially everything, depending upon her audience. And to that extent, extent she is continuity Johnson. She has said whatever she has felt has would best serve her interests in the past on any given day. And, you know, we've got the receipts for that, as they say. Some of that, I think, is going to start <laughs> catching up yeah, with it. It'll give you plenty to talk about. Uh, I have to ask about it because Twitter was lit a buzz when she was there with the Queen for, for the picture. Um, mm. There's a really bad bruise on the Queen's hand. Is this is this a big story now over there? Because people here seem very concerned about her. Uh, no, it isn't. That's the first time I've heard about this. I've not been studying the photo in any detail or at all. It might surprise you to learn. But but yes, it, I mean, it is the case. That, <laughs> not that, that why does it country, not surprise yes. us? It does not surprise you know, us, Darren. <laughs> in, in our country, leaders can change without an election, but leaders cannot change unless an old woman in a hat made entirely of diamonds says it's okay. <laughs> there he goes. Darren Adam, LBC Radio, out of London. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, they say the election races don't really start till after Labor Day, but uh, it's after Labor Day. We are nine weeks away from the midterms. A few months ago, things looked pretty bleak for Democrats. There was talk about Republicans retaking the House in a big way and capturing the Senate, which would be sure to slow down President Biden's legislative agenda. Fast forward, though, to now, after the Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade and all of former Trump's uh, troubles. And the Democrats seem to be in a position to keep the Senate and maybe even the House. David McEwen is a political analyst and political science professor at Sonoma State University. David, thanks for being with us. So the Democrats, wishful thinking on their part, or does the evidence now seem to be in their favor? You know, if you you think about midterm elections, and and one of the rules of American politics is that the party in power, especially if they own kind of all three components, right, the House, the Senate, and the White House, they lose in midterm elections, usually to the tune of somewhere around the mid-30s in terms of seats. But but something has happened. As you talked about the lead-in there, it's, it's the Dobbs decision with the Supreme Court. But there's other elements going on here. Obviously, what's happening with former President Trump, that's important. And we start to look at polling data and voters, particularly women, the, the Dobbs decision matters. But in other voter segments, we're starting to see elements where the Democratic generic ballot, generally would you vote for a Democrat or Republican, that seems to be ticking up or not giving the Republicans an advantage, even though Joe Biden's net approval is in the negative or he's underwater. So there seems to be this disconnect between voters, between, say, the Biden approval rating and what they're seeing in Congress. That's giving Democrats some hope beyond just the Senate, where it looks like they might be able to hold on to to somehow seats, even though the wave that we saw a few months ago is probably still likely to materialize. It just may be more of a, a ripple than that wave. So the president's going around trying to talk about his accomplishments. Are the Democrats still trying to stay away from him, though? They say, hey, welcome to town. Uh, go on stage, make your speech. But I'm going to be over yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great, great point. Because what happens is that disconnect between how voters see, say, the generic ballot of Democrats and, and Joe Biden is different. But you're also seeing a Joe Biden who's who's much more punching back. That, that Democrats in general are punching back. And that makes this month, whether it's Congress returns in September and we look at funding the government and everything happening that, uh, in terms of legislation these next, say, couple of weeks, hugely important to Democratic fortunes and Joe Biden. It doesn't mean we'll see Joe Biden in some of those areas or districts, but Democrats do have a secret weapon, and that's uh, Michelle Obama or Barack Obama. 
So you might see them in ads in some of these battleground districts. And, of course, uh, the White House will be around that conversation, but not necessarily with the president front and center. So if you're a uh, Republican or Democrat, uh, you're aiming your message now what? To those people who claim they're still undecided, right? That, that's right. Yeah, you're, 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 we call those the purple people, right? They're not blue, they're not red, and it's the purple people that really determine uh, outcomes. And that's where Republicans are going to want to talk still about inflation, gas prices, the economy. You know, the pocketbook always matters. But given the chaos of, of Trump or given the chaos of what we've seen, Democrats are going to want to talk about or remind voters of that. That's where Joe Biden will operate and whether or not the Democrats can get on the same page, House Democrats, Senate Democrats, and the White House, in terms of fighting back, that will be important. But Republicans are going to talk about Biden's popularity and the pocketbook reminding voters of the price of gas. And that will be nonetheless important, maybe not in California per se, a couple of congressional districts, but it will be important in some of those battleground states really setting up what's moving forward, headed to 2024, and whether Donald Trump is in or out or what goes on. And that's something, if the Republicans were to win the, the House, that Kevin McCarthy as Speaker would have to contend with. The more the former president talks, the less the purple people like him? Yeah, especially uh, purple people who identify as women. That That is a huge component. As you talk about those social and cultural issues, they may be important down ballot. School board races, what's happening with ballot measures or interests, what's happening, say, at the local level, right? All politics being local. But nonetheless, the specter of Trump in the background yeah, it's important in Texas. Sure, it's important in Florida. But those battleground congressional districts or local districts, state-level things, that will be something to watch, particularly, I would say, in Georgia and Pennsylvania. The two states are going to be absolutely critical for Democrats and Republicans in 2024. David McEwen, political analyst, political science professor, Sonoma State. Purple people. Purple people. I wonder if they, if there's like a big business in, I don't know, like purple T-shirts or something for people who consider themselves purple people voters. We could sell hats. Fast food workers could be in for a big pay raise soon. Governor Newsom just signing a bill that would create a fast food council in the state. There's a new board that would create standards in California for wages, hours, working conditions. Some fast food operators say this isn't a good idea. It's going to lead to higher prices. With us to discuss is Michael Reich, economics professor, chair of the Center on Wage and Employment Dynamics up at UC Berkeley. Michael, thanks for being with us. So People who heard about this story over the last few weeks know that there was a big fight over it, but now it's been signed. So how is this council supposed to work? Uh, this is a really innovative bill. It's going to set up a council to solve some of the market failures in, in the industry. And it's going to have 10 members, uh, <clears throat> four from the labor side, uh, two will be representatives of unions, and two will be representatives of workers. Two, and then four on the business side, two will be representatives of parent uh, companies like McDonald's and Burger King, and two more will be representatives of the individual uh, franchisees in, in, the, uh, in that industry. And then there'll be two more, rounded out to 10, who will be appointed by the governor from, uh, uh, who will you know, we'll actually represent one labor, uh, the labor agency, and the other, the business and economic development agency. So it's very balanced. And the idea is to bring everybody together and create some standards that, that this industry should have uh, for, for uh, not just for wages, but for working conditions and for hours, and particularly for enforcement of the law, even as it exists now. Uh, quite a few fast food workers report 
that uh, they're not always allowed meal breaks or rest breaks. They're told to work off the clock and, and also that they fear retaliation if they report any of these issues uh, to, to the public agencies. So, so hopefully when everyone gets together, they can work something out that's in, in, in the best interests of, of everybody at the table, which is not, not the case now. Okay, but, 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 but let me ask you something, because uh, a lot of the function of this particular uh, panel, it seems to either supplement or maybe even replace what would typically be the function of uh, a union in collective bargaining, right? So how does this work at a time when there has been an increase, as you know, in a unionization drive, especially in the fast food area? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, there's fast food and uh, unionization going on in a place like Starbucks, but only at a handful, uh, not a handful, but a very small percentage of Starbucks stores. And uh, there's no unionization in the big brand chains like McDonald's or Burger King or Taco Bell. So, uh, yeah, this would, this would bring uh, labor or organizations in, into the picture. Uh, and it would also set uh, uh, wages. It might set them higher than they are now, but wages have been rising in fast food. The, you know, the starting wage for an ice cream scooper is probably about 17 or $18 in a whole lot of California. And so the average wage is probably about $20. That means if the uh, standard, if the council increases the minimum wage in fast food over a couple of years, the $22, which it's enabled to do by the bill, that's just a 10% increase. And, and that could lead to price increases, but I think they would be about 3% overall. So that translates into, say, for a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a Burger King cheeseburger, maybe eight cents on a $2 cheeseburger, or eight or nine cents on a $2 Taco Bell burrito. I don't think that's going to deter sales, but it's going to make a big difference to the people who work, work in the stores. For, for these workers who are saying the conditions are bad and pointing to all these different factors, what does this council do to make sure, though, that I'm still not afraid of retaliation for my boss? Because they can have all these edicts and all these rules that you're supposed to follow. But, you know, if my manager at my franchise isn't doing this, then, then what good does it do for me? Yeah, I think that that mechanism has to be set up uh, to allow a trusted place for workers to be able to bring their uh, complaints. Uh, several of the enforcement agencies, uh, for example, in San Francisco, the local enforcement agency for the San Francisco minimum wage reaches out to community groups and, and provides a place where people who don't necessarily even speak English can, can feel uh, safe and trusted in voicing their complaints. And then the organization helps bring those complaints uh, to, to the to the relevant agency. Now, uh, I, I don't know exactly how this will work with these that with the fast food council, but presumably they'll set up some kind of machinery that will work much better than the, the current system. Is there any model for this anywhere so that one can point at it and say, "Yeah, you see, it works." Well, in 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 much of Europe. Uh, Employers and unions negotiate on an industry-wide basis. Uh, it's called sectoral labor bargaining, so that even if a union has a very small percentage of the workers who are members, 
it will still bargain on behalf of all the workers. That's very much the case in France, say, or in Australia and uh, Germany, many, many other countries. But this, this particular council goes further because it also deals with the issue of the franchisor and the franchisee. And it gives voice to the franchisees who are often under a lot of pressure from the parent company. They don't have control over what the store looks like or what they're, you know, what kind of hamburger they're making, uh, the uniforms the workers wear, but they can uh, control the labor costs. And they do that often by evasion. And by setting up a standard they, uh, th that the whole industry has to follow, that will put pressure upwards on the parents to recognize that, that these are you know, standards that have to be met. And, and uh, I think that will be, be quite helpful. Michael Reich, economics professor, chair of the Center on Wage and Employment Dynamics at UC Berkeley. More in-depth on the way. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. There's a bacteria that can sometimes taint powdered baby formula. When ingested by a newborn, it can lead to brain damage, possibly even death, though both are rare. Now, brain damage happened to one baby in Iowa. The mother sued Abbott, the formula maker, but lost. Because concerned parents aren't being properly informed on this risk. Bill Marler is an attorney who specializes in foodborne illness outbreaks. Bill, thanks for being with us. So tell us briefly about what this issue is and why do you think parents think they're just sort of not in the loop on this? Uh, great to have to be on. And, and this is a, uh, a, tra it's a tragedy that's you know occurred over the last several months with not only illnesses and deaths uh, in children, but also, oh, it's impacted the supply chain of uh, infant formula, and people are scrambling for that. But ultimately, the the cause of this is a uh, a, a ubiquitous bug. It's it's in the environment uh, called Coronabacter sizaki. Um, it uh, it kills about fifty percent of the children that it impacts, um, and it is uh, the link has been primarily in children who are consuming uh, infant formula. Um, always the question is one of causation, however, is was the infant formula contaminated or did the environment in which the formula was uh, produced by the family contaminating the infant formula? And that's always one of the very difficult things that happens both in trying to figure out what the cause of the illness is, but also ultimately also, you know, what may or may not happen if litigation goes forward. And what do the companies do in terms of testing for this? Yeah, so there's a couple of things I think are important to know. Um, you know, uh, most companies uh, are required by the uh, FDA to do uh, testing for bacterial, uh, uh, potential bacterial illnesses, uh, coronavirus being one of those. Um, but testing isn't 100% certain. I think most families believe incorrectly that infant formula is sterile. It's not. And I think parents need to understand that. Um, they need to obviously keep the pressure on the FDA and companies to do absolutely everything they can to produce as clean of a product as possible. But it really does require parents and as a 
you know, a dad of three, I've been through this myself, but it does require parents to be super vigilant in feeding their children. Uh, they've got to, you know, boil the water. They've got to keep the the bottles and the nipples clean. They need to be very careful about cross-contamination um, because this is a very deadly bacteria that is not uh, widely reported, partly because it appears to be rare, but only, also because there's only one state in the country, Minnesota, that has Coronabacter as a reportable disease, which I find, frankly, you know, shocking. You mentioned that there's a lot that people can do, parents can do, to try to prevent cross-contamination. Is there anything they can really do in case this contamination is happening at the production level? Is there any way to tell whether or not the formula you've bought is bad? So the companies do, it's really about clean environments uh, in the manufacturing facility. And I think for those, uh, you know, who want to sort of understand why this Abbott uh, situation happened is you read their inspection report from the FDA, you realize that FDA hadn't been in the plant for a year and a half. And when they finally did show up, the plant was a mess. And not only uh, were some of the equipment quite old, but there was uh, water damage. Uh, there were damage to the equipment. They just weren't paying attention to the kind of details that are required to try to keep a product like infant formula as clean as possible. So you really have to have a super clean environment where the product is made, and then you have to have scientifically-based testing so you understand to the best that you can that that product is most likely not contaminated. But even with the best testing regime, even with the best cleanliness, unfortunately, consumers really need to understand that it is not a uh, sterile product and it needs to be handled accordingly. And especially with somebody as vulnerable as uh, an infant, sometimes immune-compromised infants, uh, this is a, it's a real challenge. Bill Marler, attorney who specializes in foodborne illness outbreaks. Bill, thanks. So, remember that famous line in The Empire Strikes Back when Darth Vader says, Luke. <laughs> is that, is this... <laughs> I nicely done. Thank you. I am your father. That line is a classic in film history. It was delivered much better by James Earl Jones, by the way. Uh, everybody knows and remembers it, except they don't. And that's not quite what was said. Here's how it really went down. Yeah, here's the actual good version. <laughs> yeah, thanks. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. There's a slight difference. In bit. the words and yeah. the delivery. I, I was close. <laughs> Come on, I was close. <laughs> There's a recent YouGov poll found nearly two-thirds of people incorrectly remember that line. There's no Luke. It's I. Yeah. No, I am your father. Right? Only 17% got it right. Phenomena called the Mandela Effect. We do this all the time with all sorts of different things. There's a new study on it. Wilma Bainbridge, neuroscientist, directs the Bainbridge Lab at the University of Chicago, co-author of a new paper on the Mandela Effect. Thanks for being with us. So tell us first why this has that name, because that's part of the story, too. Hi. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So um, this phenomenon is called the Mandela Effect because uh, originally it was coined by um, 
Oh, I'm blanking on her name. But basically, many people believe that Nelson Mandela actually died in prison in the 80s when actually he passed away outside of prison in 2013. And so this was one of the first documented cases of one of these widespread false memories that everyone was convinced was true. And so now this term, the Mandela effect, has been used to refer to um, these weird phenomena where everyone has this wrong memory, like the example from Star Wars. And it is collective, right? That's what makes it interesting. It's not just a few people believing this, but we can do it with all these different examples. Like, beam me up, Scotty, was not a line in Star Trek. They said beam me up. They never said comma, Scotty. We, how does this happen to us, and, and where do we start inventing these? Yeah, just as you said, the crazy part of this is that we all have the same false memory for these examples. Um, so our study specifically focused on visual examples. So for example, the Monopoly man, like the logo of the board game, doesn't have monocles. He has no eyewear. Um, and what we think is there's some aspects of images that just really uh, cause our memories to act in a similar way. So there's some images we all remember, some images oh, wait, we all forget. Wait, wait a minute, because yes. when you said that, uh, so Mike here is like, he's he's like thinking, I can see the look on his face. There's he's thinking, no mo- yeah, he's And he's looking it up. Yeah. Well, there's one where he's running with a bag of cash and he seems to have a monocle on, but all the others on the page, no, no monocle. But you thought he did. Does Mr. Peanut have one? He I, does. He does. Okay. Yeah. Am I, does that where it comes from? Am I confusing but, the two? Yeah, possibly. <laughs> and also the Pringles guy does not have any eyewear. Oh, well, that's good to know. So, yeah. but, but let me ask you something, though. Uh, I suppose, you know, nowadays you could make the argument that because of social media, that maybe these these notions kind of spread that way and become kind of part of our our collective memory. But a lot of these yeah. things go back before social media, really, right? So so what spread these notions before? Why did people 20 years ago think that Darth Vader said, Luke, I'm your father, when he didn't actually say that? I think it's because we actually remember things in very similar ways to each other. Um, So this highlights how, you know, we all have different experiences and different lives, but our memories still function in a fundamentally similar way. But thanks to social media, we are able to discover these huge similarities across people. How deep does it go? Like with the original version, the Mandela effect, do people, would they tell you like, oh, yeah, I watched it on the news. I watched the funeral coverage. Yeah. When that never happened. It goes so deep that many people believe in a conspiracy theory that we have changed into an alternate dimension where <laughs> um, really 20 years ago, the Monopoly man had a monocle, but we switched dimensions and he lost his monocle. <laughs> it's the wow. multiverse. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, but let me ask you, I mean, you know, it's kind of fun talking about all this, but but isn't there really a um, a significant potential impact of this phenomenon? Because I'm thinking in terms of, eyewitness accounts, for example, of crimes, where you have, you know, sometimes four or five people and they'll be brought into a a courtroom and they'll all swear that they remember something happening a certain way, but maybe they don't. Yeah, this actually has a lot of implications for the courtroom. So um, this indicates that some faces might and some images just might cause more false memories than others. And so now that we know this, We can actually try and quantify, like, does your face cause a lot of false memories or true memories? And we've actually developed some neural networks where you can upload a photo and it'll tell you how likely people are to remember your picture. Um, Yeah. So actually knowing this about this Mandela effect is incredibly helpful for preempting these false memories in the courtroom. Can we also, like, do this to ourselves about 
our history. Like, let's say people tell a story to their friends, you know, 20 times, but it gets a little bit exaggerated, as people tend to do. If you tell that enough, do you start to believe your own <laughs> your own story? Yeah, actually, research has shown that you re like re-encode your memory in an incorrect way each time you retell it the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so none of us has any idea what happened anymore. No. Is it? Do you have another? By the way, do you have another example? You we were talking about the uh, Monopoly guy, uh, who uh, whether he does or doesn't wear a monocle. There's it, a fruit it, of the loom, right? Is there? Oh, does yeah, it have a cornucopia or not? Yeah, and most people think it does. Does, but apparently right. it doesn't. But it, it doesn't. I'm, I'm is just that right? Google all day for this. Yeah, this is very disconcerting because <laughs> all right, these. Right? I, mean, I mean, but do people are, are they so entrenched? in their beliefs of what they think they remembered, that even if you present them, like we just played the soundbite, right, from, from Empire Strikes Back, Strikes Back, even if you confront somebody with the actual evidence of what really was said or what really was done or what really somebody looked like, are people so uh, invested in their false belief that they'll still insist that they're right? Yeah. So actually, in our experiment, we showed people the correct version, and we tracked what they looked at. And even if they looked and saw there was no cornucopia, we then asked them a few minutes later to choose the right picture, and they would choose a cornucopia picture. <laughs> wow. So people yeah. are just Great. stubborn. They they just will not give up. I believe that to be true. I saw it somewhere. Yeah. Wow. wow. All right. This was fun. That's uh, Wilma Bainbridge, neuroscientist, directs the Bainbridge Lab, University of Chicago the Mandela effect. In my Googling through this, there's great picture articles that show, you know, the fake logos that half the time I'm like, well, that's the one. And it <laughs> but, is not. But here's the thing. My bottom line take from this whole thing, if we want to believe <laughs> that the line was, Luke, I am your father, so be it. Yeah. Well, everyone's just going to say it that way anyway. Yeah, that's it. All right. That's in depth for today. Back tomorrow.